Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, we discuss issues and we uh, look at people through a spiritual lens. You know, I've been finding it very interesting over the last uh, months that we've been doing this podcast that just about everybody has a spiritual story and not most of us really don't really, you know, it's like I don't talk about that. Yeah, I'm spiritual. I'm not, you know, it's kind of this thing you put under a blanket. And there's a lot of conversation about you shouldn't talk about, like, if you want a buzzkill at a party, say God. <laughs> That's a buzzkill. That'll just like, sorry, but uh, did you just say God? Um, try saying God in the same room as Richard Dawkins. I did that once because a friend of mine was in the publishing business and had arranged this dinner that everyone was supposed to be at. So I sit, sat beside Mr. Dawkins at this dinner and his book had just come out and he was the atheist dream at this point, um, the God delusion. And uh, I remember him turning to me and at some point, for some reason, I, I declared, well, I actually, I'm religious. Like I'm, I'm not... Now, I didn't just say, you know, I'm orthodox, which is what most people think when you say religious. It just means, in my world, it means that you have a spiritual yearning and you want a certain fitness program to get there. And if you don't have that fitness program, you can yearn and have moments and sort of soft epiphanies every once in a while, but you don't really have a scaffolding, a structure that can lead you toward the deeper understanding and meaning of different things, which, you know, then brings you to the God idea. If I, I sat in a room with my, I, I have two youngins at home still and two oldens. Uh, my, my guest coming up has even, she's trumped me. She's, she's even doing better than I am. But so I had a, the one who was going to have his bar mitzvah at the end of that year. He was 12 and his group at Hebrew school was talking and they asked me to come in and talk about whatever you want with them. I was like, okay. So I, I asked what they thought God was and their answers were fantastic. Just fantastic. You know, one, one woman, young woman said, um, I see it as I walk into this mist and it surrounds me, this mist, and that's God. And I thought, wow, that's like Charlton Heston level God. That's fantastic stuff. Another one had the classic, you know, guy in the sky, beard and chair thing. Uh, another one said, I just don't believe it. I'm sorry, but I just don't believe it. And I said, well, a friend of mine in spiritual direction, which is something I practice with people, spiritual counseling, uh, one of my rabbis, one of my teachers said, um, when people often come in for spiritual direction, go, look, don't get me wrong. I, I don't believe in God, okay? And the, the, the question we ask is, tell me about the God you don't believe in so that we can explore the idea of what they think they're talking about. Often it is indeed Santa Claus because they have a naughty and nice list. They're an old guy with a beard and they sit in a really cool chair. So from there, my point being that if you're on a certain fitness program, whatever it is, and it can be buffet the way it is these days, or it can be a specific religious path, um, there's more nuance to the conversation in your own head as to what you're really talking about when you talk about God. So I just want to get that out there because right now I think a lot of people uh, there's an uptick in uh, church, synagogue, mosque, temples, uh, in attendance at services virtually. Because people don't actually have to go, uh, they just say, hey, click in. And so tourist study at the, at the synagogue I go to here in Hamilton, it's got way more people in it than it usually does when it's a live in-person event. People are watching services online, which some people have been doing for years, but now everybody's having to do it. And it, it's got that virtual thing. Now, it's never going to replace the congregational feeling of being with people and praying together and singing together. But it does have an access issue that is really important for people. Blah, 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 blah. So now I'm finished. I feel much better now. Thank you for indulging me in that scary moment of my stream of consciousness. I hope COVID-wise, you're okay. It, this is starting to really grind, you know? It was like, I'll be a good soldier for six weeks. Now it's getting ugly. 
So um, try to stick with it. Try not to flip out. I know it's kind of tempting. And let's take a deep breath. And I want to introduce you to somebody who I first heard about her because she had a hit TV show. And a, one of my dearest and closest friends had been working with her. He sort of he was the, the the gatekeeper at the CBC at the time, and they got to do this show, and he got to feel like he made a right decision and fabulous show. Very proud of it, he was. And he went on to work with them for a while. And at one point I said, Well, what's it like to work with these folks? And he said, Ralph, they couldn't be more lovely. And yet they work hard like anyone else. They do everything creatively. They're just not schmucks about it. <laughs> just really kind. So it's a pleasure to work with them. So after that, I always had a wonderful feeling about them, uh, even though I, I'd never met them up until that point. And when you hear the last name of the person I'm about to introduce you to, you'll understand. How could you be any, like, you can't be a bad person with this as the last name is the way I see it. The person I'm talking about was the creator and the producer with her husband of the show Little Mosque on the Prairie. She's won numerous awards, including the Women in Film and Television Award for Innovation and the Search for Common Ground Award. And by the way, the Search for Common Ground Award has been won by real slouches like Desmond Tutu and Jimmy Carter and Muhammad Ali. So don't mess with the woman. She's ready for you. I'd like to introduce you to Mary Darling. Mary, hi, and welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Thank you, Ralph. It's so wonderful to be with you today and to be able to see you after these few months since we had that coffee down in Dundas. Yeah, so we live in the same neck of the woods, and we, we did go and have a coffee, the three of us, and it was a lovely time, and now no one's allowed to look at each other. Everyone's afraid of each other <laughs> as they go to the Canadian Tire and go, you're not six feet away from me. Get what a crazy time, eh? It's such an interesting time. I mean, it feels like, I mean, first of all, we live in a place where we're very privileged to be able to do anything like isolate. Right. Um, this idea of being separate or being able to retreat into a place where we can be safe and make decisions on behalf of our own safety and keeping other people safe is one thing. But I've been really thinking about people in the world who don't have that choice, you know, who don't have that privilege to be able to um, retreat to their own place. You know, their whole life depends upon engaging with other people. Yeah. So when you think about, so you think about these people, this is one of those, I don't know, points of irony, friction, paradox is we can live this well and we can think about those other people but sometimes that makes it very hard for us to do anything about those other people. So uh, how do you console yourself to uh, compassion at the same time as ambition and all those other things? Well, I think it's, it's really the question, you know, how do we take our empathy and our ideas and our beliefs and put them into action for the betterment of others or for the betterment of society? And I think depending on what you're doing in your life in terms of service yourself, whether it's what you're doing with your work in amplifying voices or exploring important subject matter, or whether it's me working in media, or whether it's other who know others who know how to, you know, create and distribute food or these kinds of things. I think it's a question that's very unique to each person that, um, you know, how do you take your beliefs and put them into action? And for us, I think it really makes us think about what are the projects that we're developing and, and how do we try to um, help ourselves and others take our beliefs and put them into action. So, I mean, I think it takes us to, for Clark and I, into our, our projects and the things that we develop. And it's even the reason Little Mosque, I would say, comes into existence. There's, um, um, yeah, there's interesting writings about the importance of understanding Islam and even the importance uh, from the standpoint of the Baha'is, I'm a Baha'i, um, so this idea of the, um, some of the writings of the faith say that it's, it's the responsibility of the American Baha'i to help defend the, the principles and teachings of Islam, even though Baha'is aren't Muslim. Right. Um, and 
in Shiite Iran suffer great persecution. Exactly. Exactly. But even that, the idea that that God that you were talking about, that unknowable essence, sends us messengers at different times in in our advancement in our in our history that help us to understand more of a continuing message. I would put it that way. If we don't understand part of one of those messages, how do we really advance? And um, and so the teachings of of Islam, for example, helped the Arab Peninsula progress beyond where it could have possibly progressed before. And so I think God forgets none of us. You know, he, he it, that entity, um, sees after the care and education of the planet. So anyway, I feel like I'm off in a rabbit hole, but I just... That, that's the, the yeah. whole purpose of this podcast is to <laughs> find the carrot. Okay. Get underneath there and dig. Um, so when someone says to you, what's a Baha'i? Hmm. which a lot of people don't know anything about the religion of Baha'i, but what do you tell them? What's the elevator pitch for what's a Baha'i? The elevator pitch, I guess, for what is a Baha'i, I would say is that Baha'is believe that there's been another messenger from God, um, that God, an unknowable essence, um, is merciful. And so as we, as we progress, humanity progresses, that God continues to send us messengers that help us to understand, as I was saying before, sort of one message. So I would say Baha'is believe that there's really only one religion and that it's updated Mm. (laughs) through time. And so the only reason when people look at religion and, and, and talk about it as a cause of division and strife, it's because we, we take these teachings and we, um, although they come in a, with some purity, we layer on our things, our dogma, the things that bring us power and, mm. um, and therefore change or cloud those messages. But really Baha'is, I think would say the elevator pitch would be that there's one God, one religion and one humanity. Um, and that we are in perfect unity if we can align with that. So what's a nice girl from Minnesota doing in a temple like this <laughs> yeah it's interesting because um this girl from minnesota actually has a jewish grandmother and my dad um uh for my mom when they got married and i think he wasn't raised actually very jewish because my dad lived in uh, a place called lake preston south dakota where there was no jewish yeah. community um the heartland of Yiddishkeit. <laughs> exactly. Mazel tov, the semen tov, the semen. What? <laughs> Got to get those hogs in. I know. My he's a blacksmith. My grandfather was a blacksmith, and his ah. wife um, had been disowned because she married a Christian. Yeah, a man from Denmark. It's a man from Denmark. Of all things, and. Um, and so I guess from the, my earliest years, I was, I would say I was curious about religion. Why? I don't know, Ralph. That's a really good question. You know, I bought, there were two things really that stood out. I would say I went to catechism. I was being raised Roman Catholic. Um, and I remember one very rainy Wednesday night where the nun was talking about Noah's Ark. And I would have been in like first or second grade. And I remember because it was pouring rain outside and so I was very much in my head and story and and at the end not really even without knowledge I I raised my hand and I asked her you know is Noah's Ark real or is it a story that's supposed to teach us something and she took me kindly but firmly by the arm and brought me across the street to St. Hubert's church across the street where the priest was and said Mary has a question for you And in that exchange, he said to me, Mary, sweetly, but Mary, it's my job to read the Bible and tell you what it means. It's not your job to come up with what it means. Wow. Yeah. And so sometime after that, first of all, I thought, not at that point, but as I grew, I thought, I need to read the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the other thing was that I was garage selling with my grandmother, not my Jewish, my grandmother, my mom's mom. And, uh, and I found uh, a book I really liked with a really great cover um, there and I bought it and it was the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, yeah. And there I would have been like third or fourth grade. And I read that and I thought, you know, there's something, there's something here that I'm supposed to pay attention to. And um, yeah, so I, you know, I was very spiritually curious and had a lot of questions so much so that in, in high school, um, I really, I really systematically, I wish I had the notebook, Ralph, but I started to go to mosques. It was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, like mosque, the temple, um, um, Universalist Unitarian. Uh, and I was interviewing actually the head or cleric and congregants to say, what does this religion teach and why do you practice it? Uh, what do you think the value is of this in in humanity? Because this the, this group says this and this group, it, it all just, did, it didn't make sense that we didn't, if there was a God, then how could there be so many different competing religions was the way that I was thinking about it then. And through that um, experience of just talking with people and and seeing the sincerity of the imam and the sincerity of of the rabbi and the sincerity of, of the, the clerics, the many clerics that I talked to, I thought they all really believe what they're saying to be true, I think for the most, most part. And, uh, and so there must be truth somewhere in that. And I would say that I sort of closed off that chapter by stepping away thinking, okay, there, there obviously is something that people consider to be greater than themselves, like God or a spiritual teacher. teacher. And there seems to be messengers, which are true, because otherwise, why would there be so many Christians and so many Jews and so many Muslims? And, and so what is the essence of each? And I would say I came away really with an understanding that, that the spiritual teachings in most religions and faiths are the same. Um, it's the golden rule. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you or treat your brethren better than yourself. It's really that thing which we can't seem to get through our yeah. minds, right? Because otherwise, why would God have to come back every thousand years or so to remind us that this is important? <laughs> <laughs> I left something somewhere. Oh, yeah. oh those guys. Listen. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should well, be. But here's the thing. Here's a thing. Um, if God is unknowable, how can we then tell people that there is that God is merciful? Mm. I mean, that's a human trait. I'm very, I'm always very wary of anthropomorphication of God. That yeah. God is a punishment. I, I, I'm not one who thinks God's got this thing going. Ralph Ben Mergy. Oh, right. Here sure. again. Check. I, I don't see a transactional relationship with a with a with a being, I, I'll tell you mine, you tell me yours. So my God is um, really more of a molecular idea, you know, the atomization idea, the, 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 the swerve idea, as it were, yeah. um, that we are all part of the divine body, the cosmic constant creative force, that a, a star explodes and then the energy from that pushes together gases nearby that form the next star. A child is born, gets to an age and creates the next child. That there's a relentless creativity that I'm not privy to, right. but I am part of. And I am just a cell in the body of that universal creation. And my job is either to be um, a healthy cell or a cancerous cell. And sometimes that's in the same day, mm -hmm. right? So th th that's the work of what we call the soul. So that's the way I see this idea. Anything else, like when I read Old Testament as a Jew, I, I see this people wrote this. That some, some of it was better inspired than others, but a lot of it was about social mechanisms for, for, for getting chaos out of societies. Certainly with Muhammad, there was a chaotic 7th century Absolutely. going on. And he had to sort of put some stuff out there. You know, it's a really good idea if you don't kill people when you're angry with them. And really should probably not go and try to steal your husband, your brother's wife. And, you know, stuff like that. You know, pro tips for how to get yeah. by. Right? Okay, so that's mine. What's yours? 
So I think it's not, it's not too dissimilar. I mean, um, that God is an unknowable essence. So say at that molecular level, or what is the creative, the creative force, which holds the planets in orbit and, and the molecular level, as you say, the creative force, which um, causes a, a tree to f- bear fruit and things like this. And Baha'u'llah would say, and Baha'u'llah would be the prophet founder, I guess I would call it the Baha'i faith, um, that he talks about the only way, and I think other messengers from God sort of say the similar thing, but the only way to know this unknowable essence is through his messengers. And so when you talk about Muhammad coming to the Arabian Peninsula and in three short years, really unifying that, um, that area so much so that for the first time in the, in the history of the world, um, you know, women were, he basically said, it's not really a good practice to bury your baby girls alive. Um, Women were allowed to um, um, have inherent inheritance for the first time and things like that. So we might look at Islam and say, well, it's kind of backwards or maybe there's some problems looking back through our lens at now. But in fact, at that time in that place where Muhammad manifested himself, that society um, progressed very rapidly from a place of a way of being or a way of uh, practicing sort of the, their tribal beliefs um, to, in three short years, a complete transformation of that civilization. Does it ever bug you that they're all guys? Yeah, totally, it does. But it, it bugs also, me. <laughs> it bugs me a lot. But it's also like, um, you know, if I when I take the long lens of history, I think, okay, so it took us, it took us this long to begin to really think about the equality of women and men, or even. Um, thinking about race unity or, or trying to figure out the end of racism. And um, I often make myself go back and think about the worldview. Like it's one thing to look at racism through the lens of the civil rights movement or to look at women's rights through the lens of the suffragette movement. But it's kind of like I, I have to often make myself go back and think, okay, in the day where these practices were normal, the practices were normal. It doesn't, it, it still bothers me as a woman today, but it's hard for me to project myself into being a woman then. So well, the I think- other, that, Yeah, the other, sorry to interrupt. The, yeah, the, yeah. Other, the other thing is something that's a, a, a thorn, a, a, a wound of every major religion, which is uh, the view of same sex relationships. I remember at one point I was really reading a lot about Baha'i. It was early thirties and middle of career and all this stuff. And I, I was, I loved the idea of a world without borders, a unified vision of, of, of the world. You know, we, I remember I was in France dry and uh, doing Canadian club speeches and we were being driven by a driver over to Strasbourg and uh, you know, you, you cross the border. No, we were in Germany and we crossed the border into France to Strasbourg and there was nobody at the border. And I, I looked over at the woods on either side of our car as we were driving, and I thought, you know, this is where people were killing each other over this so-called border right. 50, 60 years earlier. And now I, you drive through and just, you know, go have a coffee in Strasbourg and come back. So I, I was really loving so many different things about Baha'i. But when it came to the idea of same sex, there was a, there was a real aggressive you know, this is the worst thing you could do. You got to stop doing this. And that's in many religions, but it, it's sort of that and the idea that, you know, Matthew Fox, the, 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 the Christian mystic who has, you know, found a sort of deep ecumenism with other religions, you know, one river, many wells and that kind of thing. He, he, he spoke of his, his lack of desire for Catholicism was as a Catholic uh, cleric was based in Jesus Olatry, that we were going to worship Jesus, 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 and not the creation itself. In, right. in, so in Baha'i, I also, also did get this feeling that the Baha'u'llah was kind of get, becoming the point of the exercise, you know, listen to everything this person is saying. So help me with that one. Okay. Um, so I think like, like every major religion that I'm aware of, um, 
the, I like your point about it becoming, if it's very personality driven, or especially if it becomes this sort of um, woo woo thing that separates people. Right. Um, but I would say that in terms of Baha'u'llah um, or Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha, that a Baha'i would say that at the time when those messengers came, that they were the mouthpiece. They are the mouthpiece of God on earth for that day. Um, and so Baha'u'llah- What makes you certain of that? Uh, I think or are you? Faith and logic. Um, well, I mean, as a, as a person who's always been spiritually curious, when I read the writings of Baha'u'llah, even those things that you're putting your finger on, um, I think, okay, so when I really study and try to understand this in terms of religion as a cause of an, uh, creating an ever advancing civilization, and even when I say the word religion, I think what I'm talking about really is a new concept of religion that isn't about creating separation, it's about creating unity and having, whether you call yourself a Baha'i or not, we're all working together towards the betterment of the world. Um, and when I encountered the writings of Baha'u'llah and I read um, and studied and began to understand, I really felt like um, the things which I don't, don't understand entirely, that the body of his work in general has such a gravitas um, and such an authority that I allow myself to say, okay, I can't understand everything. I am a, you know, I am the painting and this is the painting. If you're a painter, if you want to put it that way, I am the created, perhaps this is the creator. Um, and so I won't understand everything and every reason for everything or every law, as you're saying. Um, so that's a faith issue. That's a faith issue. Does that ever wax and wane for you? I know that uh, I speak to clerics. Yeah, so I speak to clerics about their even their belief in God, and they go, you know, there's high tide, low tide. It comes in, yeah. it comes out, right? I think again, you know, when I think about being the created, you know, I'm not, I'm not the creator. I can say that, of course. I mean, any, I think anybody who's honest with themselves is able to say. There are times when I'm feeling it more or times where I struggle more. Um, but also this idea that it's really not about how I feel <laughs> that this concept of religion really holds. It's about the betterment of humanity. It's right. about working together to build something anew. Um, and so, I mean, as a Christian, it was very important to me. And I often felt like I'm supposed to feel more. I'm supposed to be... Um, more emotionally engaged or something. And I love it when I go through that time of faith where I feel like I'm really connected, you know, that's just, I'm really in the, in the zone right now or something, but mostly, and I think for most human beings of whatever faith, I think it's about trying to do the work of making the world better. Um, and, and making room for those marginalized people that you're talking about, uh, whether they're gay, lesbian, or whether they're um, struggling in, in other ways to make sure that there's love, um, that there's not exclusion, that there's not hatred, that there's not bullying. Because Baha'u'llah even talks about the fact that, you know, our identity is one of our biggest tests, um, meaning whether I'm a man and you're a woman, or you're a woman and I'm a man, or whether... Um, or whether you're gay and I'm straight, or whether I'm a teenager and you're an old person, um, that these ideas of ourselves, in a sense, are kind of an adolescent um, fixation. You know, anybody mm. who has teenagers, I've had teenagers six times. Um, uh, you win. <laughs> anybody who's ever dealt with... It's a round robin tournament. Mary Darling in with six. <laughs> I know. Well, your youngest. I can't even believe it. 13. How old your oldest? 36. See, you're killing me. I'm yeah. 30. I got 33, 30, 14, 10, about to be 11. Oh, so you're, you're pretty close. I mean, we've got, we've got grandkids the same age as our kids. So that's yeah, yeah. You, you end up arguing with your kid and you say, how old am I? Am I trying to tell a kid to go to bed? <laughs> I know. You know, it's like, what? So with them, with your six kids, they are they, are they Baha'i? Yeah, so all of my kids have become Baha'i, and Baha'is don't, it's not an imposed thing. Yeah, you're not born into it. You choose you're it, not right? not born into it. You choose it. And 
And we're also, um, it's our responsibility to teach our kids about these messengers of God. And so in doing that, of course, every time, probably I should have more kids so I understand more. <laughs> no, you must stop now. Let me ask, is there, are there dietary restrictions to being Baha'i? No, there's not. I, th I, think you're, I think you should eat a lot of ice cream, but other than that, no. <laughs> it's pralines and cream, actually, to be specific, in Dundas at that health food store it, place. Oh, it's so good, yeah. Uh, it's the size of my head, and I eat it anyway, because uh, <laughs> it's good for me. Uh, it, so are there clerics in Baha'i? No. Right. No. So when Baha'u'llah came, he said the time, and this is one of the reasons that the Baha'i community has been so persecuted in Iran, is because, of course, Baha'u'llah came um, or declared himself as a messenger of God in, in middle 1800s. And, and Muhammad it, was supposed to be the last messenger of God. Mm -hmm. And so. of course, and Baha'u'llah talks about that. He says, in fact, Muhammad is the seal of those prophets. He's the seal of the prophets of an earlier age. And that with the Bab, which is the a lot to get into, but is the precursor, yeah. the Baha'is believe that there's been twin a twin manifestation, that there's been two. Um, it I see a, the Bob is the warm-up act. The Bob is the... He's, he's, the, war, he's the warm-up act. <laughs> Get ready. Here he comes, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. He's welcome. And, and in a way... He, <laughs> you're too much. Um, the Bob, the word actually means the gate. Right. You see? In, in Persian. And so he's the gate. He, he opened the way for Baha'u'llah um, and broke... Um, like Joey Bishop. Yes, exactly. Like War Joey Bishop. Warming up to crap for Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I think that's just the perfect <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Every 19 days you get together for to share meals and talk. Is that right? So every 19 days there's what's called the Baha'i Feast. And the Baha'i Feast has three parts. Um, because when, when Baha'u'llah came, he brought a new calendar, which is 19 months of 19 days. Um, each of these months is named for an attribute of God. So you were, you were saying before, how do we know God is merciful? How do we know God is generous? How do we know any of these things? And I would say the only way that we know those things is through these messengers, whether it's, you know, Moses, Muhammad, whomever, that this is how we learn those things. And we're, we continue to be educated in those things, but yeah. So at a Baha'i feast, every 19 days, it's a mm. chance for the community to get together um, the first part of it is devotional. So we say prayers together. Um, the second part of it is a time of consultation. And so um, if you're in Hamilton or you're in uh, Toronto, you would consult about those things that you're, that the community is engaged with and trying to help advance or better the place where you live. So maybe it's talking about, um, you know, educating children or empowering youth or, you know, in different places, maybe you're dealing with race issues or you're dealing. So what are what are the Baha'is doing to try to move um, the discourse along towards something that can be better, better than what it was before? So but one of the things for Baha'is, what I remember is that um, you have to respect the laws of that land, regardless of which country you're in. Right. Yeah. Even though there's a, a world federalism piece to this. In each country, if they say there's no dancing on Tuesday, you don't dance on Tuesday. Right. So that's a tough grind between the two things of social so. activism and change. Yeah. And I got to, I, I got to, I can't. Some people's social activism is to break laws that they believe are unjust. Where do right. Baha'is sit on that? I would say that Baha'is have a very constructive resilience. Um, so, for example, um, uh, in Iran, it's a community that hasn't been broken by the restrictions placed upon it. And so to be obedient to the government in which you're working under is really um, a piece which creates an ability to be unified. Um, it doesn't mean that the Baha'is take on the patina of that place. There's still very much an understanding of the very progressive message that Baha'u'llah brought but it's also to be engaged in the discourses around you. And so Baha'is will remain um, engaged in those conversations that could advance even, uh, you know, anything that's a barrier to uh, the recognition of the oneness of all peoples. Uh, and so in some places it'll be 
um, you know, women driving, you know, in other places, it'll be um, a discourse on race or race unity. And so it's never that a Baha'i community would become passive in a way of those things if there are oppressive um, laws in a place, but rather in a peace peaceable way to bring those issues forward through an example of a unified community, I think. Um, so would you, Baha'is are pacifist? Not at all, actually. I would say Baha'is are lowercase political in some ways. Um, mm, nice. Baha'is can't be uppercase political, so we're not engaged in party politics. We're not bad-melting politicians. We're not... Um, but but that's we, a tough but, one, because I, I, I've done a lot of work in, in green politics and uh, I've worked for, with different, yeah, I've worked with different political parties and people are like, oh, why are you bothering? It's just like these people's, whoever wins this stuff gets to tell you how you're going to live. <laughs> it's kind of important. So it, it's it's interesting because other uh, religious groupings like Jews or Sikhs and Hindus, you know, being political is part of the culture. You, 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 if you right. want to make sure you don't get run over. Right. Right. So yeah. how do you console it's yourself more- to that? Yeah, I think it's more about thinking about every group as one group and then through whatever persecution or whatever issues you're going through because you identify as a Baha'i, you're never just looking after yourselves. Um, the idea is is not to um, ever take that tack, I would say. It's not about self-preservation or even about amplifying. It's more about working together with everybody to try to change. When I talk about sort of a new concept of religion, it's not like, um, and now the Baha'is come along and they're taking the stage and they're vying for X, Y, and Z, but rather hopefully what's happening is that, um, you know, Baha'is have, um, something to offer that they can help. You know, you talk about a framework or a scaffolding that there's maybe there's some new ways of thinking about things that together we can figure out, not like um, we have to, you know, we have to be loud and, and noisy in order to get the attention, but rather it's, I think it's, it's like these messengers of God. They're often, I would say they are lowercase political. Right in coming and in reforming and, and changing and advancing things. So, uh, so h- how does that, all of that inform being in showbiz? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I can't hear you. What? <laughs> That's right. You're beautiful. That's how it does it. It's just being beautiful all the time. It's what we do. We're in the well, biz. Beauty is a pretty important thing. But yeah, that's right. You call um, me when you. Well, you can't talk to me. That's right. Don't um, talk to me. Talk to my people. No. <laughs> I think for me, you know, when I think about media and I think about show business, I really think about how do we engage in advancing the discourses around anything. So, um, so. You know, for one thing, recently with CBC Kids, um, I did this thing. It was it was um, forty two episodes of a little five minute short piece about kids. It was called the Art Show, and every episode of the Art Show was just a little five minute, very much from the kids' POV exploration of them sort of experiencing beauty, um, deciding what they wanted to do. I mean, they did each each in each episode. Um, each of them created something. But what I really discovered in doing it is that this search for beauty and meaning doesn't have an age range that people are doing that. And so from my standpoint, to try to come at things thinking about what you're talking about, beauty, um, elevation of any conversation, like even just in that series, if you have a chance to look it up, it's just called The Art Show on CBC Kids. Um, And what I saw was this elevation of the idea of the child as a noble creation, as somebody with a voice, um, not somebody who has to be talked down to or no sort of screaming loud voice as a narrator or something, but very much just an authenticity that comes with the nobility of the creation of a child. Um, What we're working on right now is um, three people that we have come to know wrote a new book about global governance. Um, And so, you know, when I think, what am I gonna do next? It's usually something that I think 
can bring a voice, uh, a needed voice into some discourse. And so this, um, this threesome wrote a book um, about the need in the world for global governance. And it's essentially about the reform of the United Nations. And of course, that if, if that isn't possible, then some new form of governance that comes in. And it's exactly- Are they Baha'is? They're all three Baha'is, yeah. Yeah, because that's a major tenant of the, of the, of the faith is, yeah. is global governance, right? This idea of global governance, which means what is the institution? And you think about, you know, at the after World War I came the League of Nations, after World War II, again, a huge test and difficulty. It took 6 million Jews being murdered for the world to say that shouldn't happen anymore um, and to form the United Nations, which it's, of course, it's a mandate was to create a means of collective security in, in the world. And it's the only mandate that the UN hasn't been able to live up to because of the Security Council. Um, the UN has done a lot of other great things for kids, you know, UNESCO or UNAID or all of these other organizations which operate in a very elevated way. The one thing it hasn't really been able to accomplish is the, you know, I mean, 50 million people have died by um, violence uh, since, since World War II. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but there's and, a, the, the, okay, so the hard part yeah in the in the light of you know this idea of unity which is a major baha'i tenant is tribal feelings based on scarcity yes that, of right so we're worried that we're not going to have and that you have what i have what i want you know i'm reading a book right now called uh, a braided sweetgrass and it's very interesting because she talks about a gifting economy a gifting society yeah. and a private property society. And as long as we have the private property society, then we're going to want to kill each other for stuff. Yeah. If you have a gifting society, it's circular. Things move through it. You, you give to someone and you expect that it will work its way through and back to you again because that's the, that should be the way we do things, right? So when I think of, you know, I, I even think of a person with your belief system trying to make sure they do meaningful work in a business where, frankly, 90% of what's made is nonsense. It, it's just divertissement. But, you know, there's occasionally good things made and uh, people love stories and you're a storyteller and all that. But how do you walk the line between, oh, this is rather dry and, hey, everybody loves it. Uh, like, how do you do that? How do you build? It's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge. And I think how you protect yourself from getting really didactic and silly about stuff is to work with people like Anton, who you mentioned earlier, right. Anton Leo. Um, it's to, you know, one of the very important, I think, um, laws in um, that Baha'u'llah brought is around consultation in all things great and small. Um, and I think if I had, or if it was just uh, Zarka and Clark and myself, creating episodes about Little Mosque on the Prairie, it just, it wouldn't have broken through in the same way because we needed other voices at the table that saw things through the lens of absurdity and comedy and dogma and all of the things that are sort of um, allow that door to open for the fun that then raises the consciousness of, well, what if, you know, and what if this and what if that, what if we thought a little bit differently about this? I mean, even when you think about the culture of scarcity and you think about it doesn't take you more than a second to sort of contemplate on um, the pure accident that my mother lived in Minnesota when hmm. I was born and, and your mother lived where she lived or, or Tangier. Tangier, exactly. Or a child <laughs> born in the Rohingya refugee camp or yeah. it's, it's accidental. And so this idea that we sort of elevate ourselves above others is so weird. It's so just, there's no, there's no plan for each of us. It, we you happen to, well, I mean, is it, there are people who would say it's not accidental, that you were meant to be born there, you were meant to live the life you're going to live, a fatalism to things. Right. Uh, and that you're, the point of faith is to trust you're not driving the car, but that you should actually try to pay attention while the car is being driven. You know, th th there is that whole that thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I think that um, the way I would describe that is that there is a greater plan of God and there's a lesser plan of God. 
and that the greater plan of God, that being, we have nothing to do with. We have we don't know what's happening. We don't know <laughs> is this pandemic about was it from yeah. God? Is it not? Like um, and then there's the lesser plan of God. And the lesser plan of God is where we can engage. We can say, okay, we've been um we've been uh given a pandemic. What are we gonna do about it? Are we going to hide? Are we gonna become useful? Are we gonna be optimistic? Are we going to be fatalistic? Are we going to, how do we take whatever it is that we're dealt with through trials and circumstances, hurricanes or cyclones or whatever, and then, and then deal with it with a level of grace and resiliency yeah, yeah. and how do we build and what do we learn as we go through those things yeah, and, I love and that. empathetically experience other people going through those things instead of it being like, you know, we asked we, as when we were starting to interview people about, um, the UN, we said, you know, how is climate change is preprint pandemic. Now, now we've got a, anyway, yeah. um, how has climate change affected you? And I was really surprised, Ralph, how many people we talked to who said it hasn't really. And I thought <laughs> it's so interesting because it's a very unempathetic response where we're thinking materially about our own selves, as opposed to entire islands who are looking at um, entire cultures that are failing, entire yeah, but we're, islands we're, are transplanting. We're parochial by nature in some ways. You know, the old joke at journalism school was, you know, if you're writing in Toronto for the Toronto Star, your headline is, Toronto man dies in nuclear holocaust. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, you know, say, like, oh, wow. I want, do I know him? Oh, that's Morty. I know Morty. Oh, that's a bummer. Morty bit the banooch. Like, we have to understand stories, and you know this. So you're a storyteller. You, you can't tell the story of global governance. You have to tell the story of people and how they respond to the idea of global governance. Exactly. Right? So, so there's a particular and a universal to everything, including our faith. Let me ask you this about when you die, do you just die? No. So there's a very interesting um, thing. So I actually, yeah, it's very interesting that I was just having a conversation last night um, with a group of friends because this question came up, like what happens after death? And somebody shared this wonderful story um, about life after delivery. Mm. Right. So if you, if you were, if you had a couple of twins in a womb, um, and they were having a conversation. One might say, what do you think happens after this? And one might say, nothing. There's nothing after this. Uh, what would make you think that there would be anything after this? And the other would say, well, I, when I'm quiet, I sense intimations from another place. I think there might be a mother. And the first says, a mother? Like, you're crazy. What do you mean there, there's a mother? Like, there's no such thing as a mother. And, and the other says, well, but you can feel her all around us. I sense her. And I, I, I feel that there could be, there could be more than this. And, and they begin to examine, like, why do we have fingers and why do we have eyes in a dark place? And why do we have ears in a place that's with muffled sound? And, and, uh, and the one never changes its perspective. And then who knows what happens? And the other one has this faith where they feel like, Maybe the things that they're developing in the womb, like eyes and sight, sight and hearing and perception and intuition and things like that, maybe it has a place in the next life. And of course, is then born and realizes, oh, if we didn't have our hands and if we didn't have our ears and our eyes, we would be without sight, without hearing, without perception and without the ability to do anything. Um, and so Baha'u'llah really asks us, like, what are those things that we are to be developing in this world, which whether we know it or not, obviously would serve this place, but maybe it serves more in the next life. And um, so Baha'u'llah says that there's um, many worlds of God and that we will advance spiritually through these worlds. And that the thing that is important here to try to acquire I guess a Baha'i would call the attributes of God or the things that we learn through those messengers. And those things would be things like um, generosity, uh, the ability to self-sacrifice, to put others before yourself, um, the idea of 
uh, an, an equality and a in a synchronicity between science and religion that for some reason it's very important for us to learn to understand this that science without religion he says is materialism and religion without science is superstition right so this that's one of the things i loved in reading about uh, the baha'u'llah's teachings was that whole idea of the compatibility of science and uh, of reason and faith reason right? and faith yeah. You know, like I, I remember I was giving a, a talk once and I said, uh, I'm, I'm religious and I was talking, blah, blah, blah. I said, but five minutes later, I went, oh, you know, about five minutes ago, I, I, I said, I'm religious and you heard I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody cracked up because I said, because what you think is that I'm being irrational. Right. There, half of our lives is non-rational. It's, it's mystery. And it's, it's staying confused in the mystery that is the for me, the point of the exercise is not to, you know, to be cert uncertain is uncomfortable, to be certain is ridiculous, mm -hmm. right? So even it's in faith, perfect. we get that, right? Yeah, I think it's to to not lose, somebody asked me, asked, asked my, actually my 16 year old daughter the other day, like, how do you, you know, how do you keep from believing that you've nailed it, kind of? Like, <laughs> um, Especially and, in in our business, how do you you know? Especially in our business, and yeah. um, and I think that that's where that quality of humility comes in, and that's where the quality of continuously seeking that when you found religion, whether you're a Jew, a Christian, or you know even atheism, I would say is a religion. But when you found something, what are we done then? Like right, right. if if there is um if there is a truth out there uh, how do we continually engage in trying to discover it um do we somehow just decide this is what i am this is who i am and we then become lost in that idea of identity which usually right. divides people right so ramdas talks about you know do not be fooled by this incarnation, you know, that the sp it's just a spacesuit with your Mary Darling on it. Right. And then Mary Darling spacesuit gets left behind and we move on to something else. But these are hard things in a, in a, um, you know, prove God kind of world. And you know, oh, yeah. the answer is prove love. You can't, but you're going to spend your whole life worrying about it. It's, it's a real thing. And the you other know, thing is prove not God. I mean. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, yeah. But but then the whole thing is lost in the idea that you're supposed to prove at this point. Yeah. If you if you know it's Hineni in, in, in Hebrew, Hineni is I am here. It's not where is God, it's no. where am I? What am I doing with my life? Uh, I can't worry about the things that I have absolutely the universe is completely incomprehensible on, on the scale of which it exists. Exactly, Ralph. We get little bits about it and we yes. just think, wow, okay, the Hubble telescope, that is so cool. <laughs> I cannot I believe what I'm looking at. But the notion of hundreds of millions of, not stars, galaxies, is enough to make you shut up. <laughs> yeah, Bahá'u'lláh talks about there being an infinite number of infinite universes. Right. And right. the other the other thing that I, I wanted to just highlight before we start to wrap up is there is this notion of one God in many worlds or one world with many gods. And part of what I think is a frustration, certainly for me in my life, is feeling often that I'm living in a world of one, one, uh, God, one world and many gods. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of idolatry mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that goes on in our lives. That we worship, uh, you know, somebody can worship one of the stars of Little Mosque on the Prairie. You know, right. I, you, you changed my life, man. You were just the best. I love yeah. what you did. And it's just like, whoa. <laughs> don't give it away so easily right? yeah it's so true yeah i think that we're never done i think that's the the thing if i really believe you know i mean maybe because of this jewish grandmother and christian father and then i became a baha'i that there's one god and many paths to him but that there's really only one religion in a way and I'm not sure if your listeners will understand what I mean, but that if there is one God 
and and if for example we're sent these messengers to progress as a as a humanity not as a part of humanity not as this part came for these people or that people but that in fact that we are being educated and that our capacity is growing like think back 2000 years we're very different than we were 2000 years ago um and we've advanced not because of our own wonderful scientific undertaking but because we're being educated and if we can submit i mean the word islam itself for example means submit right. submission right. Um, and I think that's a quality that our cultures in the world don't think about very much. Well, like, humility is a tough one, right? If you live in a world of private property and and finite mortality, you know, I, I, I'll always be walking my dog and I'm looking at everybody's house and you know, their own palace and how hard they've worked to get this yeah. thing in that car in the driveway. And I just think, you do know this is all a rental, right? <laughs> It's all fleeting. It, like it, this is a blink in the eye of God. This is yeah. not the point of the exercise. This is just this really cool moment, and we have no idea what el what else is happening. But you know, try to enjoy it without actually trying to make it solid. Buddhism is beautiful about these things, about the impermanence and that the suffering, the samsara comes from the clinging and the grasping. Right. Exactly. The exactly. And Baha'u'llah says the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the this uh, attachment. So, do people when you when you're doing your business and you know pitching shows, do they know you're a Baha'i? Do you ever bring it into the conversation, or do you leave it out? Um, most people, I think, in the industry know that we're Baha'is. I don't feel like we have to talk about it all the time, but I think I hope that we try to as much. You know, we're full of flaws. I mean, especially me. Clark is a much better person. Than <laughs> I thought you were going to say especially Clark. No, I, I was. <laughs> I thought no, he'll hear this. So yeah, I that's right. Like, wait a minute, honey. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think that I I hope that the hardest thing about um, believing that you're going to die mm. and that you'll be judged is that when you work in this business, um, it's a business full of um, or lacking precedent in a way. And so any contract can be any contract. And so you end up working with people who um, who just, you know, agents and stuff that just want to get whatever they can get from you. Yeah. Um, and there's a line that's crossed where it becomes unjust or, or you, you sense, you know, man, you can't just take advantage of me because you think I'm nice. Like <laughs> I believe Baha'u'llah came to bring unity and justice. Um, and the, and the justice part, I have a particular justice bug about it, but anyway, all that to say, we don't, we don't, Baha'is don't proselytize. Um, right. Like Jews. Yeah. And so if something, if something, for example, little mosque had um, the, the, you know, the mosque sort of inside of a church was something we were really interested in because we wanted to see these communities rub up against each other and learn from each other and experience how much more alike they were than different and things like that. Um, and in that respect, I know I talked to Anton about the fact that Baha'is see the world in a certain way and that we're not interested in, um, you know, um, separation, separation. We're not interested yeah. in stories which are degrading to one of the messengers. Like we're not going to make fun of the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. We're not going to make fun of Jesus, but we will make as equal opportunity fun out of dogma or the things which happen in religion, which create separation. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, in my spiritual direction training, my ordination program, it was one of the things was how do you get it? There was a deep ecumenism course that was being taught by a lovely rabbi uh, out of Boulder who has a synagogue in the Lutheran church in Boulder, but uh, him and his wife. Uh, and uh, he, he was he was able to, to say, look, uh, rabbi uh, Zalman Shachter Shalomi is the sort of founder of Jewish renewal. And uh, Reb Zalman said, Go and ask people from other faiths, how do you get it on with God? So I asked a Christian friend of mine, and I said, oh, full disclosure, as a Jew, we were brought up to try to denigrate the notion of Jesus. That, you know, my friend's grand grandmother, she's going to bed, turns around, looks into the living room, goes, Jesus, a nice guy, <laughs> but the son of God? And then goes to bed, right? And then we all think that's very funny and it's all these things. But I said, but I, I really have a warped view and I have to come to terms with that. <laughs> and, and she said, well, the first thing you should know is that 
Jesus Christ is not what's written on his driver's license. Christ is not his last name. Right. Jesus is the human manifestation of the divine, and Christ is the cosmology of the divine. And I, I just like a lightning bolt hit me. I was just yeah. like, thank you. It was a uh, Marty Tyndall, who was a moderator of the uh, United Church at one point. So it was yeah. a lovely thing. All right, we got we to gotta wrap up. I could talk to you forever about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Remember, I, I, I still want to do a, a, a multi-part series on death. Me too. And we're still, we're actually developing something. So we should talk. Oh, absolutely. Because everybody's like, why would you do that? It's like, since I was three, it's the only thing I've been thinking about. <laughs> we do. And we've pitched so many different scripted series. In fact, we just, we just pitched one to CBC that was passed on for now, at least. And, um, but we continue to try to develop. I mean, I think one of the, one of the pieces that really allowed me to parent my kids in a particular way is I asked this man when I was young, I was 20, before I had my first child. And and I said, what's the most important thing to teach your kid? And he said, first, you teach them about the oneness of all things. That's the first mm. thing. And that's actually what the Baha'i writings say, to teach about oneness, one God, one, one planet, one people. Um, and, and he said, the second thing is teach your child that they're going to die. Because, and I have in every case, you know, it allows us as human beings to see our life in light of our death, like the baby in the womb I was talking about. Right. Right. We, have, we think about why are we not for our own point system or something in the next world, but we don't know what matters, but we're being told that these acts of humility and generosity and kindliness and, and service and things like this, that these things really matter. And so if those things matter, then can we live our life in light of that death where we move from that womb, you know, where we're, swallowing water and breathing water into this world where we instantly breathe air and have a use for our fingers. I think the next world is as different from that world. The world. Lovely. That's just lovely. The the late comedian, Mike McDonald used to do a bit where he'd say, I'm going to the airport and walking down and looking at things and, uh, you know, there's this Hare Krishna guy and they're dancing, they're singing. I'm like, bugger off. And then, you know, what I'm worried about is I'm going to die. I'm going to get up there and it's going to, I'm going to look and God's going to be a Hare Krishna. I'm going to go, oh shit, how did that song go again? Hare Mama. <laughs> so, hedge your bets was his, uh, and he's passed away, so he'll be able to tell us someday. Mary, I want to thank you. I really do. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your wisdom and your time with me. And uh, I want you and uh, Clark and all six of your children to have nothing but good things in your life. <laughs> And you as well, Ralph. Take care of yourself. Thank you. You do the same. Mary Darling, co-creator of Little Mosque on the, uh, on the Prairie and uh, prolific producer with her husband, Clark, of all kinds of wonderful stories and, and ways of being and a devout Baha'i. I'm Ralph Benmergi. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can just go to my email and say hi, ralphbenmergi at gmail.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's talk if you have ideas for the show. If you want to subscribe or like, please do. We always appreciate that, and we're on all podcatchers. Uh, and if anybody out there gets inspired to go, hey, you know what, I think I want to sponsor this show, uh, my wife, my children, my dog, and my producer will all be very happy people. So just, you know, keep that in mind. No pressure. No, just a little Jewish guilt, but no pressure. I think what uh, you're doing is wonderful. <laughs> thank you. And I checks in the mail is the next sentence. All right. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And Mary, thank you once again. My pleasure. Thank you.
podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.